I planned to go to law school after I graduated, but uh, looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. Scaling business plans Then I became the CEO man Are you ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world? Then you're listening to the right podcast, Ditch Digger CEO. We're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing rags-to-riches stories. These entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success. We'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires, many who started with nothing. You're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school, and with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over $1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you want to be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. Here we are today with Ditch Digger CEO. I think this is like number 14 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I got, uh, instead of Quentin today, Quentin had some other stuff that we couldn't get uh, around. So I've got uh, Nick Lodge in here with us today. Nick, welcome. I've got about the same amount of... Uh information as quentin but maybe just not as charismatic so yeah yeah we'll be lacking a little charisma you're gonna, you're gonna have to pick up pick know, it up it's tough to be as exciting as uh as quentin for yeah. sure glad to be here though glad to be here and we've got uh, a friend of mine here that uh exudes leadership exudes all the character traits of the leaders that we have on ditch digger ceo uh this friend of mine is uh is a servant leader that uh rises above the rest in in, in uh in my opinion so this is gary mccarthy Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Gary. <coughs> That's really, uh, really kind of you. Thanks, Gary. <coughs> Gary, uh, you know, I, 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 same name as me, of course, but he, somehow they threw another R in his name, Nick. Um, so my nickname I gave him was R two. And uh, you know what? My whole life, I'm 59 years old. Nobody ever came up with that until I met Gary Rabine. Wait a second. So G A R R Y. Correct. Interesting. Now here, here's here's the story. It's my maternal grandmother's maiden name. Hmm. And this is what I just recently found out, because I was born and raised in New York City. Um, She was raised by her uncle, which I knew, but I didn't realize that my great-grandfather was a scoundrel who uh, (laughs) actually sired something like 20-plus children, uh, 13 or so, here in Chicago. (laughs) So anybody with the last name of Gary with two R's is probably a cousin. Whoa. How about that? That's 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 some big productivity there, 20 kids. Yeah. You don't you don't see that too often that's, nowadays. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, I'm not going to get there. I can tell you that. Now, when uh, think about it. so you had some roots in Chicago. There's some there's some roots before you got here. Huh? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I didn't even know it, but uh, I got family out here somewhere. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So so Gary, uh, you know, we, we're going to start like we always do, right? We want to talk about you know where's where's leadership come from, and 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 how does this this leader that that's in front of us, you know, how, how do they how do they come about? How their leadership skills come about? Where, the, where their values come from. So we start like right from the beginning. Give us, give us a little bit about your upbringing. So I, 
anytime I talk about <clears throat> anytime I talk about myself, I always talk about my parents. Uh, my dad was a World War II Marine. Uh, did the entirety of the Pacific Theater from start to finish. He was at American Samoa, Guadalcanal, New Guinea, New Britain, Iwo Jima, and the occupation of Japan as a machine gunner. Wow. Uh, all of that before he was 25 years old. So, wow, yeah. Um, my parents were that greatest generation that Tom Brokaw talks about that went through the Great Depression, then went through World War II and came back to the States and just went on with life with those old-fashioned American values of hard work. My mom was a registered nurse who, uh, as she put it, was forced into early retirement at the age of 79 <laughs> when she fell down while caring for a patient, broke her ribs, uh, and, and couldn't work anymore after that. So, uh, th you know, that's the values that I've been given. Uh, I'm the youngest of my generation. I have two older brothers. All my first cousins are older than me. But um, that's how we were raised. And, you know, it was blue-collar, middle-class, uh, wasn't always easy because, you know, they did not recognize PTSD back in the day. And mm -hmm. obviously, with everything my dad went through, he had it pretty badly. Um, and then he came home, became a New York City policeman. Uh, my oldest brother, Jimmy, became a New York State trooper. Um, my mom's father was a police officer who became a fireman. So public service kind of runs in our, in our DNA. And uh, growing up, I always wanted to be a policeman, but the expectation was that we were going to do better, right? So uh, I was going to law school, <clears throat> and I took the uh, LSATs back in the day, and I did well enough to get into just about any law school I wanted to. Problem was, uh, I didn't have any money. So we had already taken all the civil service tests. My parents had us do that as we were growing up. And uh, the NYPD called me right as I was graduating college. So I said, this is great. I'll go on the NYPD. I'll get a scholarship. I'll go on and become a lawyer. And then the next thing I knew, once I put on that uniform, I found out that that's what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And I could feel it. I could absolutely feel it. And uh, from that point, it took off. I got fortunate. How, uh, how old were you then at that point? I came on at 22 years old. 22? Yeah. And uh, I was very fortunate because I caught the sergeant's test. Uh, I think it was in 1984, like two years after I came on. Uh, I caught a lieutenant's test and got promoted to lieutenant. When you say caught one, tell me about that. The tests only come up every couple of years. Okay. And, and, you know, the NYPD actually laid police officers off in 1975. So by the time my generation came along, they were hiring like crazy. My, my class was 3,500. And classes after that were two and three times the size of that. So, so this is the massive, this massive mid, mid 80s? Early 80s. I came on in 81. Okay. Uh, and, and massive hiring. And with it came the civil service test for promotion, mm -hmm. sergeant, lieutenant, and captain. And if you hit the top of each one of those lists, you got to take the next test. And that's the end of the test. After that, it's all appointment. And I kind of thought that was the end of my career because the test taking was over. Mm -hmm. And I was working in some of the most difficult uh, precincts in, the, in New York City. And, by the way, loving it. Um, what was it about the uh, the career that stuck out to you that that made you feel like you were really just gonna fit in well? Was it was it the uh, um, was it the fact that um, you know you were you were serving others or you know was it was it the uh, the fact that you felt like you were out there actually making a difference? Uh, all of the above, mm. and and with it, uh, crisis management. You know, one of the, one of the things that I really pride myself on, and I, I think that this could be innate, but you can also learn it is uh, a coolness under fire. When, when things get crazy, 
uh, they seem to slow down for me in my mind, and I'm able to think more clearly, probably than normal. <laughs> Some would say my judgment is clouded when I'm when I'm not in a crisis. I guess, but that's a great that's a great trait. And and uh, so Nick Nick uh, is going to fire a lot of questions at you. Nick is a young leader in our organization, runs one of our our businesses, a startup business of ours. Um, loves the military himself, served himself, and uh, so he he, uh, he he. I know he thinks a lot of of, of what you've done and. And yeah. uh, so don't don't be afraid yeah, of some, definitely. some you know, crazy um, questions he might throw well, at you. Let me let me just give you this really quickly because it's kind of important to my development. This happened a little later, I guess. I was oh, wait, well, and one more thing, by the way, Chicago, a city slicker in Chicago, uh, you know, ready, going to get out there and vote and get his friends out to vote too. Well, that's what I like to hear. That's what I like to hear. That's what I like to hear. And and do it early and often. You yeah, betcha. Right? In Chicago only. Yeah. Um, but here's something that I, I love to share this story. Um, my dad used to talk about his service, you know, once in a while, and I, I learned a lot about it. And I, I studied history, so I studied where he was and, and what, he, what he did. He was in some epic battles in World War II. But later on in life, it was, uh, I think it was 1995. My dad had passed in 1983. And I was uh, recording a show about Iwo Jima. And when I went downstairs and looked at it, because we had a barbecue that day, um, believe it or not, a 75-year-old man told a story about my father, showed a picture of him, and named him by name. And I was oh, like, oh, my God, wow. this is pretty amazing. So I, I ended up getting in touch with the producer of the show who put me in touch with six guys who were still alive at the time oh, wow. who were on Iwo Jima with my dad. Wow. Now, if you know about the history, um, most of the guys who were on Iwo Jima, it was their first combat. Now, my dad had been in four years of combat previous mm. to that, so he was one of the grizzled veterans. And these guys told me the most remarkable stories about my father. And, uh, you know, uh, that that's something that I really sure. internalized sure. because they talked about the fact that he really kept them alive mm. through his leadership. So was he in a, a pretty prominent leadership position at the point that he went into, they went into Iwo Jima then? Because you said he was the no, he was No, he, he was only a corporal. Okay. But okay. by the end of the first day, he was acting as a first lieutenant because sure. everybody got killed. Um, and, and actually, this guy, uh, Maurice Weisenberg, uh, told me uh, an amazing story. He was on my dad's machine gun, and there were actually six guys on each one of those machine guns. Hmm. And uh, he gets over, he gets, you know, he jumps over the... the uh, over the side and, and loses all his equipment as he's landing on Iwo Jima. And the way he put it, he snooped and pooped, and it took him about five hours to traverse the 600 yards right at the base of Mount Suribachi. And he had no equipment, and he, he, he found a machine gun, <laughs> and, and he dragged it with him. And when he got to the other side of the island, there was a little perimeter that was set up, and my dad was in charge. And he said, Jim, look, I got, the, I got a machine gun, and my dad's face lit up. And he said... And then his face dropped, and he said, Jim, what's wrong? He says, well, where's the tripod? He says, well, I couldn't drag the tripod and the gun. He says, but the gun is no use without the tripod. <laughs> so he said, well, what do you want me to do? He says, well, you have to go back and get the, get the tripod. Oh, oh, so the guy oh. crawled an, another 200, 300 yards oh, back wow. across the Jeez. island, and he grabbed the tripod. Yeah. And then he said to himself, well, if I bring the tripod, then he's going to say, where's the ammunition? <laughs> so, so he says, I told these two Marines to follow me and grab those ammunition boxes, and they must have thought that uh, I was an officer because they did it. Huh. I said, and, and, and what, what did my dad do with the machine gun? He said he set it up and he wouldn't let anybody touch it. I said, well, what did he do? He said he would fire it once in a while, fire, move, fire, move, fire, move. 
and that's how they stayed alive. Hmm. But uh, wow. pretty pretty crazy story. Weissy, yeah. go get go get the tripod. Jeez, you know that. One of the things I think that is a, a great preparation for, for your life is working and having to work under some sort of a um, um, disaster, you know, type of scenario. And, and it, really, it really preps you and makes you, you know, aware of, of, of what things can, can turn into and, and what life can actually be like. And, uh, and I think that if you're able to operate under such conditions like that, I think that, uh, you know, it really does help you in the long run with, with anything that comes at you in the future. It's a great, great point. And, and on that point, Gary, you know, in, in your younger days, let's say that your first 10 years, what was something that you were part of that, that, was, that really tested your, your character, your calmness under fire? Um, well, I got my windshield shot out from in front of me one time. Um, but, you know, the ironic part, when I was graduating from college, uh, one of my friends uh, in college, his father was a captain in the NYPD, and he said to me, um, when I finished my training, he says, let me know. My dad says he could probably get you to whatever precinct you want to go to. So when I finished my training, I called him up, Howie Kaplan, and I said, Howie, I want to go to the 46th precinct. He says, 46, okay, I got it. And this is way before cell phones, right? So... Uh, about 20 minutes later, Howie calls me back and he says, Gary, did you say the 46th precinct? And I said, yeah. He says, my dad wants to know if you actually took the psychological exam because nobody asks to go to the 46th precinct. <laughs> All you got to do is screw up and you'll get dumped there. And I said, no, that's where I want to go. It was one of the busiest precincts in the city. And as I like to say, if you're going to own a restaurant, you got to start by working in the kitchen. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then you can move up to bussing tables, right? And then move up to an organization. And you know, I got a I got a super uh, base because the crisis management started immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. And and you know, if if you go to a slow precinct and then you make sergeant, maybe you're not going to handle those crises so well because you haven't experienced them. Hmm. And uh, it served me very very well. I worked in some of the toughest precincts in New York City. Sure. And and I I mean literally, I was in uh, blackouts, um, riots. Um, obviously the World Trade Center and all, all these various uh, hu- floods, hurricanes, you name it, uh, crisis management, mm. starting from little crises, responding to disputes with families and, and trying to sure. keep everybody alive and then, you know, moving up the ladder. So, so you mentioned uh, the Trade Center. Yeah. Uh, that had to be, um, you know, a point in your life you'll never forget. Can you? And in talk? some cases I'll never remember. And, yeah. and I'm not being facetious. There's... Yeah. As best I could figure out, there's two 20-minute periods that occurred that day that I can't recall. People told me what I did, and I don't recall it at all. Um, you know, that, that was uh, the granddaddy of them all. And the ironic thing, and, and this, is, this is something that happens to me all the time, is um, when you're in those moments, you know, people ask you if you're scared sometimes. You're not scared until afterwards. When you're focused on what you're doing, sure. um, you know, the danger almost is, is not even evident uh, although I did have a, an airplane wheel basically fall about 10 feet away from me at oh, one point wow. that day. Those things are big, yeah. and they bounce wow. really high. But but the other thing was, you know, bodies falling too at the same time. And, you know, it was pretty crazy. Um, I, I'm really fortunate. I got to the Trade Center uh, just as the second plane hit. And you want to talk about helplessness. I'm number three or four in the NYPD at the time. I was the Deputy Commissioner of Operations. And as I got to the trade center, the second plane hit the South Tower, and there was a radio transmission that I'll just never forget, which was a police officer came on the radio and said, 
notify the military. We need air cover. We're under attack. And I'm sitting there looking at the radio like, I don't know how to notify the military. Yeah. How are we going to do this? So long story short is I sent up a, a command post. Mayor Giuliani came there. We actually brought him there. Um, and uh, eventually the South Tower fell on top of the building that we were in. <clears throat> so wait, we wait, got, wait. it fell on top of the building that you were in? Yeah. Yeah, so we got we got trapped in that building for probably 15 or 20 minutes wow. trying to get out. Um, and when we did get out, we got out in time to get caught in the second collapse. Um, so we all got separated. I was with Joe Esposito, who was the chief of department. He was pretty much my partner in the, in the position that I held. And uh, we went to City Hall Park, which was only about 100, 200 yards away from the World Trade Center, because it had a fence, and it's a low-lying area that if planes were coming in, we were thinking that, you know, with the big buildings around us, they wouldn't be able to hit there. And with the fence line, we figured that we had a defendable perimeter. We're thinking in military terms because mm -hmm. the sure. question was, what's next? Mm -hmm. sure. Are there going to be guys coming up out of the subways with AK-47s or what? And uh, really ironic uh, moment when we heard planes and uh, we knew that all the planes in the country were grounded. So in, in a nanosecond, I had three thoughts. Um, first one was, oh, my God, more incoming. Uh, and then I looked up and I saw two S-16s going wingtip to wingtip up the Hudson River. And I had two more thoughts, which is, oh, thank God they're ours, to, oh, my God, the military is protecting New York City. Mm. And uh, that was a seminal moment. You know, that's a very strange feeling when you're in a position of leadership and you're kind of helpless all at the same time. So were you there when the second tower got hit or before the second tower was hit? Right as it got hit, I, I arrived. I saw it. I saw the second plane wow. hit the tower. Um, yeah, quite a day and a number of things happened that day. And, and there came one point, um, this was interesting too, and it, it, for some reason this always goes back to my father when it comes to leadership. Um, there came a point when the first deputy commissioner got back to police headquarters, evacuated police headquarters, and called up Joe Esposito and somehow got through to us while we were in City Hall Park. And uh, he said, come on, come back to headquarters because we're going to start here. And Espo and I both agreed that that was a really bad idea because that would be a target if there's another secondary mm -hmm. target and it's so close. Right. And eventually he ordered us to, <laughs> to go to, to, to police headquarters. And I, I picked up and left, uh, fully expecting to die. And uh, the ironic part is I didn't think about that for another two weeks. And I had this very conscious thought of my father. So uh, whatever it is that, that he put in us, that's where it comes out, which is good, I guess. Sure. Because people need leadership in crisis. Absolutely. And, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of your friends were part of this whole thing. I mean, we're in that, those buildings, right? There oh, were yeah. We, we many were, people you knew and fire, fire and rescue and police. and 13, 13 friends of mine died that day, including oh. uh, the guy who had the locker next to me when I was a police officer in my precinct in the 4-6 guys who I worked for, because <clears throat> at one point in my career, I was a lieutenant in the emergency service unit, which, you know, if a citizen needs help, they call the police, and if a police officer needs help, they call emergency service. It's like six months of training to get through emergency service. They do everything from rope rescue to confined space. Everybody was a, a paramedic or an EMT, scuba, um, you name it, hazmat, and uh, I was a lieutenant there for a while, and uh, we lost a lot of emergency service guys that day. Hmm. 
we lost 23 total, and, and I knew 13 of them. Did, did your firsthand experiences there change your political views and some of our uh, um, interactions with uh, international countries today? Wow, great question. Um, yes and no. Like, <clears throat> I, I first thought about how do we protect, at the time, New York City and, and our country. And uh, part of that uh, went to the issue of immigration, right? Because when you look back at the, at the terrorists, the hijackers that day, um, where did they come from? How did they get here? And that's how I started working backwards to forwards. Um, but the, the, the thing that really came out of it uh, was a different way of policing in the country where, you know, at that point, when we talked to the FBI, they would say, well, we can't really tell you because you don't have the clearances. So from that point forward, we all went out and got our top secret clearances and we started working jointly with the FBI to uh, kind of dismantle some of these groups as we found them. <clears throat> and that's been happening ever since 9-11, very successfully, I got to tell you, because very few and far between have slipped through the cracks. I think New York at this point has foiled something like 30 plots wow. uh, since September 11th. Did you uh, experience very many of those in Chicago? Um, we, we've had a number of them yeah. since I've been here, uh, you know, and, and honestly, we have a lot of work to do to be prepared for it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. We keep getting pulled away from, from what we need to do because of the politics of Chicago. Hmm. And uh, if we're going to get policing right in the city, we have to remove the politics from it. But everything about Chicago is about politics. Nothing gets managed. There's no business management here, which is the platform that I'm running for mayor on, which is using business management uh, performance-based government, which I helped create in New York City, um, using data, looking at data, looking at the inputs, creating those internal systems to develop the outputs that we're looking for. And in, in every business environment today, if you're not if you're not looking at your data, measuring your data, and, and, and running your business on on great data, right? You're you're in the dark ages. Sure. And yet, and yet, in these in the in the, in the pol political environment of Chicago, you're not seeing a lot enough of that. Nothing gets managed here, Gary. Um, literally, uh, that's my opinion. Well, let's let's go back to before we get to there. Let's go back to you know your opportunity in Chicago. How they come about, and and, and can you tell us a little about that? How that that's sure. The story there. So, um, <clears throat> in nineteen, no, not nineteen. It would have been two thousand three, I think it was. Uh, one of my friends came to me. I was deputy commissioner for three years at that point, and uh, he said, "Chicago's looking for a police superintendent. Why don't you put in a resume and see?" you know, take the temperature, see where you stand. And I did, and uh, ironically, but I became a finalist. Um, it was myself, uh, Phil Klein, and Joe DeLorenz, who was a former CPD guy who was in Winnetka or, or one of those places. Um, and uh, I didn't get the job. Phil Klein got the job. Um, but then they thought that I was, people thought I was actually looking for a job, and I got recruited by Cory Booker. Uh, the mayor of the new mayor of Newark at the time, to come out to Newark and give him a hand, <clears throat> which I did for five years, and, and we we set records in reducing crime out there. Mm. After running New York's crime strategy for seven years, I left in 2006, October of 2006. I left the NYPD, and uh, you know it was an interesting experience in Newark. Um, the difference, Newark has the same political problems that Chicago has. It's all about the politics, nothing about the management and the corruption uh, in city government. As a matter of fact, I used to make the joke that 
the three previous uh, mayors of Chicago each did 20 years in office, and then they did five to 10 in the penitentiary. Yeah. <laughs> and we were, gonna, we were gonna break that cycle with Cory Booker, which we actually mm. did. Um, as you know, he went on to become a senator. As a matter of fact, saying, he announced his presidency, the, uh, the presidential Newark, the, run today. The Newark mayors, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Not, I think you said Chicago, right? Mm. Did I? <clears throat> I think so, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could be right there, too. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I could be thinking about the governors. Yeah. Maybe, there you go. You know? right, now you're on. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so, so I went to, to Newark, and it has the same problems as Chicago without the infrastructure. There's not a lot of pie to fight over in Newark, and I think, therefore, they fight that much harder. Uh, it's the largest city in New Jersey, but, you know, only... 12, 1,200 police officers, which is not that large, but mm -hmm. in, in New Jersey, it's the biggest department. Yeah. How, how much of it is, is a, is a, uh, um, a department strategy mitigation versus being proactive versus, uh, you know, getting to a goal that, that you had wanted to be at as far as crime rates, statistics, stuff like that? Well, I never set the actual goal, mm -hmm. and, and I know we do that in business because you want to produce more, right? You can actually, when you're producing something, you can do that. Mm -hmm. But to say that we want to get a 10% reduction in crime each year, that depends on a lot of variables. Right, right. So the, the, the goal was to make it run better and make it run more efficiently and faster, which is what we did. And you have to make sure that your inputs are producing the outputs with the internal systems being managed that you want. And, and I told you this, Gary, one of, the, one of the smartest things that the NYPD did was they send executives to Columbia University School of Business to learn business management mm. applied to policing. Awesome. And, awesome, and, yeah. and that has, you know, that happened at the same time when Bill Bratton came to New York City and changed policing from being reactive to being proactive, mm. to preventing the next crime instead of just responding to it picking up bodies and picking up shell casings and trying right. to solve it, preventing the next shooting. What, a, what an original thought, right? Proactive <laughs> instead of reactive. But, you know, businesses, you know, bad businesses react instead of being proactive, sure, right? Sure. Yep. Same, sure. Thing in, same thing in governance. It's got to be similar. You know better than I do, but being proactive has got to be the, the only way to real success. Sure. And, and, and I can tell you this. It's also the opposite is the way to real failure, and that's mm. what Chicago has done. Yeah. Chicago is reactive. Um, <clears throat> everything I saw in decision-making had to do with something that happened yesterday rather than preventing something that was going to happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. and, and the corruption is overwhelming at this point, and this is what's wrong. Nobody seems affected by it. Nobody seems to care <clears throat> about people, you know, leaning on people for contracts, charging people, you know, to, to do their, their uh, appeal, their taxes, the, the conflicts of interest, and then the outright thuggery when you have a council person, an alderman, who's wearing a wire for two years for the FBI. And when the council finds out about it, they're not outraged about the fact that he obviously did something that the FBI is holding <laughs> over him because he's not doing that right. out of the kindness of his heart. They turned to street code. Really? They basically said snitches get stitches. One of them said, you don't talk outside the family. Who do these people wow. think they are? Don Coleone? Wow. Hmm. But that's the nature of city government. Yeah. And 35 aldermen have gone to jail or been arrested or been indicted since 1972 and has only been 100 sitting aldermen. So I think that's 35%. Holy cow. But 35% go to jail. That's crazy. And we accept it. Yeah. We should be absolutely outraged. And now you got mayoral candidates giving back money 
that they got as campaign donations because the people they're getting them from are criminals. Well, if you rob a bank and you give back the money, you're still guilty of sure. bank robbery. Sure. Yeah. What makes this okay? Is yeah. it is it four four out of the the top six or seven right now, with yourself included? That four out of the top that are actually tied to this. this Absol- yeah, absolutely. Look, we're on. A, I, I don't have it with me, but last weekend we were on the front page of USA Today with the the, the new Chicago is all about corruption, and mm-hmm. it had five faces. It had Ed Burke. Uh, uh, Bill Daly, Tony Preckwinkle, Susanna Mendoza, and Jerry Chico. And those folks are actually getting traction in Chicago like this is okay. Yeah. If you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. And I can't believe that we can't shake Chicago out of this slumber. It's unbelievable. So we go, go back to uh, when, when, when your opportunity came about in Chicago and, and uh, why. You know, why? Why were they looking for somebody new in Chicago and, and what were the results? And I know a little bit about this, so I'm asking this because I think it's important to talk about the results. Get, yeah, I'm sitting fastball, Gary, and you're giving me fastball. It's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Rahm Emanuel recruited me to come out here based upon my success in both New York and, and Newark. Um, <clears throat> so I came out here with a with a – a program that we knew worked, we implemented it. What year was that? Uh, I came here in 2011. Okay. So I'm eight years now. Um, we implemented that program and we got the lowest murder rates in this city in 2013 and 2014 since 1965. How about that? <laughs> um, since then, uh, actually, this is a very important thing to know, is that my last three years as superintendent, 13, 14, and 15, if you compare them to the last three years, 16, 17, and 18, there's been 658 more people murdered in Chicago. Wow. That's mass murder. Which, which the percentage is like 50% more, 60%? What is it? Uh, I, I, don't, I didn't so, even do the percentage anymore. It's like 50%. Yeah, I thought, wow. I, I, thought, I, I, thought wow. I saw those. Carjackings like are up 150% in wow. the same time period. So... And what, and what? So tell me what you did, Gary. What'd you do differently? I mean, I know, again, I've heard a lot of Data. stories about how well you did with this. Data and, and internal mechanisms and management. Uh, first of all, we, we streamlined the organization. The first thing I did was I looked at the organizational chart, and it looked like the uh, periodic chart that we all got in high school chemistry, <laughs> right? And I said, you know, what is a assistant superintendent? And the story would always go like this. Well, back in the day, old man Daly wanted to promote Johnny Jones, but he couldn't work with Johnny Smith. So they created an assistant superintendent and put one here and one there on the other side of the organizational chart. I said, okay, tell me what a deputy superintendent is. Creative job descriptions. Yeah. Well, back in the day, old man Daly, I said, stop. I got this. I actually eliminated those top two layers in the department. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and started streamlining operations. Uh, we streamlined operations to the point where we uh, actually consolidated six districts into three districts so that when I got here, we had 25. We knocked it down to 22 districts. We streamlined the detective areas. Uh, instead of five, we knocked it down to three, south, central, and north. Go figure, right? <laughs> Geographical. Um, we made sure that we right-sized the districts. We eliminated these citywide task forces that were running around the city. Um, we had three separate departments when I got here. We had the I Do Police Work Police, which is the citywide task forces. We had the I Make People Feel Good Police, which is CAPS. And then we had the I Answer the Radio Police. <laughs> and none of the three shall do the other's job. Wow. The officers Re- reporting the to the same person or are they reporting to the same? No, all different. No. 
a little different. Yeah. But but th- this was a generalization. Yeah. The officers who were in the districts were shorthanded, so all they did was answer calls for service. And we answered too many calls for service. We had to streamline what we were doing, right? We had to stop answering some calls for service, quite mm-hmm. frankly. So those officers only responded to calls for service, never doing any proactive policing. The officers in the task force are the officers who have no connection to the community because they could be on the northwest side mm-hmm. on one day and on the southeast right. side the next. Right. Right? Those are the ones who get us in trouble with the quote-unquote heavy-handed police tactics mm-hmm. that they use. Um, and then the CAPS officers would, would basically not do police work. They'd just go out to community meetings and talk. Um, and I decided that the two officers, if Rabine and McCarthy were in the same beat every single day with beat integrity and were held accountable for answering the radio, for doing the proactive police work, and doing the community relations all at the same time, we'd get a better product. Sure. So it wasn't an organization pulling in different directions. It became an organization all pulling in the same direction. Disbanded those citywide task forces, and everybody got geographical accountability. How was that, how was that cross-training uh, taken by you know, the unions, the representatives of the union, the, the, the oh, you know, union I, police and all that? Gary, you know, one of my favorite sayings is that there's two things people don't like, the way things are and change, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of consternation when you want to change things. Yeah. And uh, eventually, you know, looking back, people say, wow, that really worked. Because overall crime was down 40%. Like I said, lowest murder rates in, since 1965. Uh, complaints against officers went down. We, did, uh, we had this gold star training for, for something called police... Uh, um, Oh, my God. I can't believe I lost it. Police legitimacy, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that was the the idol of the country. Everybody was coming here to learn about this. It was put together by us and a couple of uh, professors at Yale. What does that, con- what does that consist of? Um, it's a one-day training uh, of giving people a voice, uh, recognizing the differences, but recognizing the similarities in people. Mm. Not just telling people what to do, but also listening to them once the tactical situation is gone. If an officer is responding to a potentially dangerous situation, the tactics are the first most important thing. Once that's gone, we could have a conversation. I could tell you why I stopped you. I could tell you what's going on. And, and that reduced complaints against officers along with the beat integrity. Because the officers got to know the five kids who were coming from basketball practice versus the five kids who were always on the other corner. Mm-hmm. So... Just practical application. So, of so, business so engage, management. engagement in the community is what I is, is what I heard. You know, when you're when you're in charge, uh, you know, the engagement in the community was at an all all time high from what I knew, from what I've heard from other from police officers, from communities, and gosh, you know, that just makes sense. Well, but beyond that, Gary, the data driven policing of putting the cops on the dots, hmm. who, when, and where crime is happening. You know, we have all this data, and if you don't use it, like you said, in business or in policing, it becomes useless. If we put the same amount of officers in Sauganesh as we do in Englewood, we're failing. Because in Englewood, it's the most violent community mm. in the city. Yeah. So we have to ensure, if we're gonna reduce crime in the city, we have to take on the big dogs first. Yeah, right? but it seems like a West no-brainer, Lawndale, right? West Lawndale, Englewood, and so on. Yeah. So when I disbanded those task forces, that's how I was able to right-size the districts. So you use these data points to hold to hold the officers accountable, right? Um, um, now, now you seem like a like a very uh, service oriented uh, type of person, and and I, I'm curious to know your opinion on 
on how much of a, uh, what makes a good police officer and, and how much of it needs to be that they're, they want to serve their community versus, um, you know, incentivizing them. And, and you know, for, for, for companies like, like the ones that we're a part of, it's, it's you need to set goals and that's how you incentivize, incentivize them. And this, it seems like there's a little bit of a community service aspect to it that, that doesn't, in, doesn't really incorporate itself into the, the, the corporate world. Yeah, well, first of all, it takes a while to become a good police officer. It doesn't happen just because you graduate the academy. It probably takes at least three years, at least three years. But you have to spend those three years in a busy place where you're getting hit with, you know, all the craziness over and over again if you're going to get trained properly. Sure. And that's why, um, in general, uh, what I was doing was cycling the officers through the busiest districts when they come on the job mm. because it's better for the organization's health in the long run. Mm. And people look, people in the community would complain about that. They're like, why are we getting all these rookie officers? Mm. Well, because <laughs> there's something, well, but there's, they need the experience, but the senior officers have something in their contract where they could bid to whatever district they mm. want based wow. upon their seniority. Oh, wow. So people don't realize that. And for instance, African-American communities complain if they don't have enough African-American officers. We're not actually in charge of that because of the right. bidding process. Right. The officers can go where they want. So, you know, there's, system, there's systems failures with what the community is expecting and what they actually get. And I, I'm going to give you the biggest systems failure uh, that you could have ever seen in the history of the Chicago Police Department. Right now, these conditions still exist. Eddie Johnson, the police superintendent, is not in charge of the discipline system of the Chicago Police Department. How's that? How, how can you have a leader not, not accountable, if he's responsible but not accountable? Yeah, that's, right, it, right. that's the worst business management in the world. I was accountable for the behavior of all the officers, but I could only make a recommendation to the civilian police board if I wanted to suspend an wow. officer for 30 days or more right up to termination. And the interesting fact that's gotten lost in the Laquan McDonald issue is that 75% of my recommendations to terminate an officer were overturned by the civilian police board during my tenure. Wow. So I want to fire cops, and yeah. I'm not being allowed to do it. So is this uh, national or is this just Chicago? No, this is just Chicago. Okay. Because Chicago, and, and in 2012, I identified this, and I went to the mayor, and I said, Mayor, we have the most dysfunctional discipline system that I've ever seen in my life. And what I recommended to him, because besides the fact that I'm not in charge of the discipline system, there's all sorts of different pathways where officers can go to arbitration, they can, mm -hmm. they can go to, to various forms of, of hearings and get penalties that they're given reduced. And that's not what should be happening, quite frankly. But beyond that, I was not in charge of the investigation into use of force by the Chicago Police Department. Yet wow. I was accountable yeah. for the use of force right. in the Chicago Police Department. So in the Laquan McDonald case, people expected me to do something I couldn't do. They wanted mm -hmm. me to fire Van Dyke, which I couldn't do. The only thing I could do was put him on paid desk duty until he was indicted. Then he could go into a no-pay status. Mm -hmm. That's Illinois state law. Sure. That's not a contractual obligation. That's Illinois state law. Yet you hear people constantly complaining about the FOP contract and the protections that it's given the police mm -hmm. officers. Right, right. It's state law. So if, if that's great that we want to change it. You can't do it through the contract. <laughs> so now 
IPRA, the Independent Police Review Authority, is now called COPA. So I'm sure it's much better at what it does since they changed the name. <laughs> uh, COPA still investigates police use of force, yet Eddie Johnson is accountable for the behavior of everybody in the Chicago Police Department. Wow. So here in the Laquan McDonald case, the cover-up of that video, even if it did happen on the criminal side, I wasn't involved in it. That was investigated by the U.S. Attorney, the State's Attorney, and IPRA. Chicago Police Department was not involved. Even if I was in charge of it, it didn't happen on the criminal side. It happened on the civil side. And, and what's the story here? In the end of March of 2015, the family of Laquan McDonald approached the city in the form of the Corporation Counsel, Steve Patton, Rahm Emanuel's attorney, in mm -hmm. essence. Um, and they wanted a settlement. And Steve Patton, within, I think it's nine days, had hammered out an agreement and was in front of the City Council Finance Committee with a proposal to give the family $5 million, even though they had not filed a lawsuit. Hmm. He said they did that all the time, which, what's that called again? Oh, right, a lie, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and there was a caveat not to release the video, which he did not tell the City Council Finance Committee. Hmm. But I have the testimony from that day, which was around April 7th or so. And uh, he describes the video. He describes the actions of all the police officers. And then they start asking him questions. And one alderman asked what I think was the best question, which is, so is this a scenario where the officer's actions were so wanton and depraved that the city might not be on the hook for the liability. In other words, are these criminal actions? Mm -hmm. And Patton gave him an answer that went around in a circle. Mm -hmm. And the alderman followed up and he said, so in your opinion, the officer acted within the scope of his employment. And Patton said, that's right. Well, wait a second, what's that called again? Oh right, a lie. Yeah. Because murder, we know, is not within the scope of employment of a police yeah, officer. I'd like to see him point that out in the training manual somewhere. Right? Yeah, yeah. but but. The question becomes, what, what would be the motivation to do that? Well, in April and March of 2015, Ron was in a runoff with Chewy Garcia. And if that video got out, he's yeah. not winning that election. Absolutely not. Right? Yeah. So that's no a way. crime. It's called official misconduct. Yeah. When you, when you take an action as a public official that mm -hmm. you're not authorized to do, i.e., lie to the city council to give away $5 million of taxpayer money not to release a video... That's wow. a crime. Oh, big time. And that's the story. And I took the fall for the whole how, thing. How would, uh, how would you as mayor change that, that whole deal? I mean, what, what would it look like if well, if first of all, I put, as mayor? First of all, it, it, obviously the world has changed dramatically in three years of policing since I've been gone. Mm -hmm. But if the police superintendent is going to be accountable for the department, he or she has to be in charge. So I would actually switch it up and have the police board making recommendations to the police superintendent so yeah. that the final authority on discipline becomes the guy sure. who's going to be accountable for, for whatever happens, yeah. or a woman, right? Well, also, then it gives the boots on the ground an opportunity to, you know, state their opinions about what they think about their, their fellow officers. Yeah, we need, uh, one of the things that I was implementing was a, was a 360 evaluation process mm. where supervisors don't just evaluate their, their workers, the workers evaluate their supervisors too. It's it's pretty common in, in business today, in good business today. It's done everywhere. Not in right? policing. Yeah. <laughs> not in policing. Yeah. Hmm. And it's uh, it's crazy that's not. Yeah. 
because you want to be challenged as a leader. You want people to be able to, you know, call you out. Hey, man, you're not living by our core values here. You, 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 you know, you built these core values, but boss, you're not living by them. Yeah. You need those conversations, and without it, you're not going to get them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I got some of my best ideas out of police officers. Um, we would do focus groups, and I'd have, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 police officers come down and. We'd sit around and I'd talk to them. It took them a while to open up, you know. That's mm-hmm. that's at least, if you're giving them an hour, it's at least a half hour before they open up. Yeah. Or there's one guy in the crowd who just can't stop talking, yeah. you know. <laughs> but uh, some of the best ideas came out of those focus sure. groups. Yeah, I mean, if you don't give the guy responsible um, the the freedom to make reprimands, you know, to, to the people he's responsible for, I mean, you can't really hold him accountable for some things, you know. I mean, it's, it doesn't really make sense to me. I, I need you to explain that to people, Nick, <laughs> because... Uh, in Chicago, uh, that's the way we've always done so, it. As, as a matter of fact, let me just yeah. closing closing that chapter. Um, for the last three years, people have been saying to me when they see me, they say, man, you got thrown under the bus. And I would say, well, why do you think that was? And the response is always, well, that's what we always do. And I say, well, how's that working out? And they say, well, not so good. So why are we doing it? Yeah. <laughs> change what we're doing. Sure. And if you, if you want to change what you're doing, what we're doing, we have to change the people. We can't put the same old people in place who've been part of the problem here for decades. That's what's really disturbing me. And and they're very clearly involved in past corruption and present corruption and deal making and, and you know bad politics sure. behind the scenes. Yet they're gaining traction. So so when you think back to that that, that day that, that that happened and and you heard this this police officer potentially shot somebody that many times and all that, you know. Where were you when that happened? What you know? What was what ran through your mind for that 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 time? Well, so I got a phone call that the night that it occurred, telling me that we had shot and killed somebody with a knife on the south side. Didn't get a whole bunch of details because there weren't the the first three reports from the scene are generally wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was really just a, a notification that that we had been into uh, we had shot somebody. Um, the next day, <clears throat> some more details came in. I don't even remember what they were. <clears throat> but we had executive staff meetings every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Mm-hmm. And I implemented a policy that every police-related shooting would be reviewed by the executive staff at the next meeting that occurred. So that shooting happened on a Monday night. And it was Wednesday morning that I got a full briefing on it, including see the, seeing the video. And that's where I found out how many shots were fired. <clears throat> that's where we saw the video and uh, I was very angry. I mean, it, it, you know, it, Laquan McDonald's life was a tragedy in so many different ways, and the system failed him so many different ways. He was a ward, a ward of the state when he was shot. I mean, his family wasn't taking care of him. The state was. Hmm. So <clears throat> he had some, some uh, substance abuse problems, but he was trying to get himself together, mm-hmm. right? And at the end of the day, you know, the p- police get left, in some cases, in the worst case scenarios, yeah. with individuals like this. And uh, the whole the whole thing from start to finish now, as you look at it, is obviously a tragedy. How many lives have been ruined by it? Well, listen, and everybody's got their own story, right? I mean, he, he comes from somewhere, you know, he, he, has tr- he has obviously some trauma, he's had struggles growing up. And, then, and I mean, th- there's no excuses for, for the actions that took place, but I mean, the police officers that are, that are out there every day, they're experiencing a ton of trauma and they're all affected by it differently and they all have backgrounds themselves, you know? So, so there's, there's just a lot of stuff that is that gets brought into the, to the whole thing that I think people don't really, don't really think about. No. And, and 
you know, we asked you, you asked earlier about the the decision on on Van Dyke, and you know, is it enough time? I've never heard everybody being satisfied with the with the decision from a trial. Mm-hmm. I've never heard it, and and you know, this really points to the fact that something I've been talking about since 2000. I became the deputy commissioner of operations in the NYPD, in uh, actually on Y2K. That was my last day in uniform, oh, that hmm. I, I was deputy commissioner. And since that point, uh, I've been looking at criminal justice reform to get us to the point where we want to be. And, you know, what's not happening in Chicago, and this is troubling to me, is we're not talking about the issue of race. We're not talking about how we got here. We're not talking about the history of African Americans in this country and this city between racist policies and racist laws that existed for hundreds of years, and people are talking about reestablishing trust. You can't reestablish something you never had, Hmm. right? And if you think about it, um, slavery, black codes, segregation, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, redlining here in Chicago, they were all racist policies. Hmm. What's what's redlining? Redlining is the way that Chicago ghettos were created, going back... 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, when the Great Migration came from the South. We decided to put African Americans in one neighborhood and not let them go into others. And, you know, things like the Dan Ryan were allegedly built to prevent Hmm. people from crossing over those neighborhoods. And what happened in those neighborhoods? Those are the poorest served neighborhoods uh, in Chicago. African Americans talk about segregation in Chicago existing today. And nobody is taking this on and talking about it. And nobody is willing to touch the third rail about race. And, and we have to have that discussion if we're going to move forward. And I need to just point out that <clears throat> it was the white police who were enforcing all of those policies going back to black codes when you could be arrested just for being on the street, for being African-American at certain times in certain places. Wow, that's crazy. <clears throat> what about, what about uh, you know, when you think about this, I, you know, I'm an I'm a entrepreneur and I'm always talking jobs and how do we create more jobs in the right, in the right neighborhoods and atmospheres. Um, <clears throat> when you look at that, is, is there something that could be done as far as you know, job creation Absolutely. In, these, in these areas that, that create opportunities so these Absolutely. kids have, have an eye on opportunity and, and mentorship from, from people, successful people, the real jobs, right? Sure. Sure. How much? How much can that make a difference? And what you know? Any so any idea on what you how you look at as the mayor of Chicago? Here's the elevator speech. We're losing population in Chicago because of gun violence and high crime, taxes, and the economy. And the third issue is a poor school system and unaffordable housing. Right? The neighborhoods are withering on the vine. So part of the plan to stop the exodus is first of all stop the crime. Right. We have to we have to first make the city safe before anything's going to change. But that's not going to happen until we end the corruption at the same time. We need to have a government that's serving the people, not serving themselves, which is what's been going on in Chicago for decades. Decades of corrupt government has put Chicago in this position. Absolutely. Nothing being managed. So part of the plan is to bring back the trade schools and the apprenticeships right into the high schools, maybe even into the middle schools. I'm talking to people and they want to start it even earlier to try and capture some of these kids. At the same time, capture in a good way, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, what we want to do is give small businesses and startups uh, tax incentives to go to the neighborhoods, 
We'll assume all of these abandoned properties in the city, take that newly trained workforce to go out and rehab those units and create affordable housing and senior housing and all sorts of other things all at the same time. Using TIF funds in the fashion that they're supposed to be used rather than pouring them into projects like Navy Pier and Block 37. That's good. So that sounds like a great idea. One of the things that I read recently was was uh, the idea that when 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 nine eleven happened, um, the crime rates and suicide rates went down dramatically in that area. Um, and I think that the the article was was pointing at the fact that that was due to the fact that everybody felt like they had a purpose, right? And everyone felt like they were doing something to help out. And uh, it makes me wonder if uh, creating opportunities like these jobs in these areas would would allow people to feel like they're participating more in society, and, and they they had a they had a reason to you know they were contributing and, and they were helping out and making a difference. Yeah, well, you just uh, you just brought back a couple of visions for me as I was as I was driving to the World Trade Center, uh, going straight down the middle of Manhattan. Uh, there were civilians directing traffic all along the way, hmm. from every walk of life. There was you know one guy who was who appeared to be a, a heroin junkie <laughs> in the middle of the street directing traffic. And in another place, there was a guy who looked like the big senior corporate executive with his briefcase uh, and his feet, yeah. and he's directing traffic, yeah. getting us there. But, yeah, and, and you know, it, if you go, if you spent any time in some of the neighborhoods like West Lawndale and, and Englewood, there's a palpable sense of depression that you can feel. The issue of a food desert is real. Um, when you can only get chips and a, and a, and a soda pop right. in, the, in, the, in the corner store, what type of nutrition are you getting? Um, but people need hope, right? And jobs come with hope, and, and it's a vicious cycle, right? Because here's how I put it. You know, we're losing population because we're losing population. We're losing population because of high taxes and gun violence. Because we're losing our tax base, everybody who lives here has to pay more taxes. Because we're losing our tax base, we're closing schools and pulling social services from the neighborhoods that need them the most, which is causing more gun violence. Mm. So it's all interrelated, and sure. it all has to be treated at the same time. Yeah. And, and you know, a couple of your competitors in this race, they you know, you got to tax the rich more. I mean, they're, they got to pay their fair share. I mm. mean, I, I've heard this multiple times. And and the people that that I believe are 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 the biggest asset or some of the biggest assets of the community are people that actually have been successful in Illinois and Chicago. They can really be you know great great assets to you in the future. Boy, you, but if you're telling them you're, they're not paying their fair share and you're you're taxing them more, I, I'm I'm afraid and I and I know through through experience in my conversations with many CEOs across Chicago and area, they're looking to leave. Man, they they've got their plan yeah. and it might be two years out or five years out. But they've got their plan in place right now on how they're going to get out. And it's a crazy thing to think about and to hear. For me, I'm, this is my home. This is where I've, I've raised my family and built my businesses. But I'm hearing it constantly. Yeah. So how, how do you how do you get that out? You know, again, when, well, when, when they're hearing Chico, Gary Chico is a, a friend of mine also, right? And I hear Gary on, a, on an ad saying the rich need to pay their fair share. This is crazy. I mean, you're, you're, you're losing them. You're losing them rapidly. You're going to lose them a lot faster when that's your mentality. Gary, I, I am spending an inordinate amount of time with all the candidates because we go to these forums all the time. And it's really obvious that some people are just pandering for votes. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot less rich people than there are middle class and poor people in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So if they support the rich people, they're only going to get 10 votes versus 100 votes right, if they right. do it the other way. And, and that's where a lot of these policies are being developed from. Sure. Yeah. And they're not practical that they're going to save Chicago. But he, here's something else. And you mentioned Gary Chico. And, and I like Gary. He and I just met. But I, I mm -hmm. actually like him. 
anybody who jumped into this race after Rahm Emanuel jumped out is, first of all, a coward, and second of all, not doing it for the right reasons. Mm. They're not doing it for you. They're not doing it for anybody else. They're doing it for themselves. It's a good point. You're in this race from the get-go. I was the second person to declare my candidacy. The first one was Troy Lavriere, who ended up dropping out because he couldn't raise any money. Mm -hmm. So I'm the longest in this fight. Yeah, so you're willing. And and by the way, my policies sound hauntingly familiar when I'm watching some of these commercials on TV, bringing back vocational schools. I mean, the first, but here's the interesting thing. The first policy we released after we declared was an ethics and government policy. When people ask me about what we need to do to reduce gun violence, I talk about we have to go legit in city government before we can expect legit policing, right? And then three weeks ago, I did a press conference calling for judicial oversight of the city council. Mm -hmm. How about a consent decree for the people who are overseeing the police department? Not just for the police department, if that's the way we're thinking, right? right? Who's overseeing streets and sands? What type of corruption is there? Who gets their garbage picked up? Who gets their their streets plowed, right? We know about this. It's the Chicago way. So I called for oversight of city council. And now, last week, we got a no snitching code in city council. If we don't fix our ethics, we're done. And the people who've been here for decades and we know who they are, are all historically part of the problem. And they're going to use the same business practices to put us in this place. Whose fault is it? Is it the people who are um, not breaking the laws, taking advantage of the system that isn't legislated properly? Or is it the people that should be legislating it properly, right? And I think that a lot of the blame is being placed on the people who are are just staying within the laws, but taking advantage of it, and not the people who should be changing it, and the people who are responsible for changing it. Well, you kind of lost me there, Nick. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, bottom, the bottom line is the people who are legislating uh, in city government do it in a knee-jerk reaction type of fashion. And um, there, there needs to be some city planning done that's not being done. And, and that's the way decisions. I'm telling you, my time as superintendent here, every decision that was made was made politically, not practically. And it was all about somebody's politics. Sure. The nice, nice thing about uh, the business mindset really is we don't have to do things politically, right? And if we get to be political, if we get to be bureaucratic, bureaucratic machines, we lose and we're not going to be around a long time. So, so for you, for 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 you to think of it as a business leader is important as heck. And uh, and, and I, you know, I I I I like the fact that you've you, you know you've, you've constantly fed your mind with business leadership uh, uh, principles. And uh, I think I think that's going to play well for you. Well, yeah. and, and leadership in general, Gary, it's very important to me. Uh, as I was getting uh, ready to come up here today, I was thinking that people are still telling me about the NATO summit in 2012 when I was out there mm. in the middle of all these riot-geared officers with just a, a hat and a long-sleeve white mm. shirt on uh, doing my job. And, and it's just beyond comprehension to me that people would think that I would have been anywhere else when I was in charge of that. But that's the way we always did it, right? Yeah. It's if not, you're not there, not you can't get blamed. But that's not common. That's yeah. not common. Well, it that, should be. And that's and that's real leadership. You can't lead from the back. How <laughs> how how many mayors? Any part? Any who in this country is running for mayor that has the the depth of experience you have? Uh, there's nobody close. I mean, and when we look at the, the 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 competitive people running against you, again, there's nobody close. Yeah. Um, we're, we're in crisis, Gary. We're in crisis, and and I really specialize in crisis management. 
if 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 life means anything and 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 the lives of these 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 kids being shot and killed on a daily basis mean anything uh, people get out and vote for you yeah um if if they really don't care about that then they they don't need to be here yeah so I got one more question for you this this is this is an interesting one that I've I've always battled with and uh, and it's it's raising your kids and and providing that uh that exposure to you know, scenarios that are maybe a little bit dangerous, but also keeping it safe enough because you don't want them to get hurt, right? So when we're talking about raising your kids, how, how do you provide that uh, that same type of, uh, you know, crisis that you were in, um, but under a controlled environment um, to prepare them for the future? Well, I, I will never, ever, ever put my children in harm's way. Uh, I'll tell you what, I drove into a shootout over the summer with my wife in the car, and uh, she was pretty upset about it. Uh, I kind of took it all in stride. I was a little excited, actually. I gotta tell mm. you, but I'm I'm obviously wired differently. I would never put my children uh, anywhere near harm's way. Sure. Uh, I will, however, share my experiences with them, and hopefully, they they learn life lessons through other people. Sure. Rather than having to experience it themselves. So, right. I gotta tell you, you know. Uh, <laughs> our son uh, Kiernan right now between Kristen and my DNA this kid is hell on wheels uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen he's two years old but this kid is a ball of fire so I know that it's coming and it's going to be challenging down right, the road right. but it seems like that's the I argument hope. nowadays with millennials too with being uh, you know people say that they have they don't experience enough um, so they don't have that first hand um, experience to apply to their future and I, I, I struggle with that with raising you know kids in, in my future and, and how I'm going to expose them to enough um, you know diversity but the world has changed I'll tell you what the, one of the things that um, there, there's a lot of diversity uh, I live downtown. I live in River North, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a ton of diversity right there. It's a great neighborhood on top of it. <clears throat> but I, I hearken back to this. You know, my brothers are five and six years older than me, and when I was in fourth grade, I was taking public transportation by myself to go to grade school. Sure. Um, in the Bronx. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't. I wasn't. You know, in a, in a suburb somewhere. So. Um, I, I couldn't imagine doing that today. Right, right. I couldn't imagine letting my children do that today. But uh, the world has changed, and one, we have to one, change one with last, it. One last thing I want to mention is, is uh, you know, how you use te- technology to, the, to benefit your, your force. I know when, you know when you came in here, you were talking to somebody about technology and, 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 and in, your, in your future role and where it might, where it might help. Um, how do you look at technology and, and, where, and where you embrace it? And how do you continue to study technology as a business leader has to? Yeah, and yeah. how is it negatively affecting the, the, the department too and, and the city itself, you know? Well, so a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it was technology. Uh, when we started doing our business management in the NYPD, we actually would create acetates and put dots on the acetates showing where crimes had happened. And then we'd have to talk about what we were doing about this cluster and what the patterns look like. Today, everything is automated. Uh, We got to that level over a very short period of time, quite frankly. But that automation gave us the ability to track crime on a daily basis. Because you don't want to wait two weeks into a robbery pattern to identify that 10 different people just got robbed. Right, right. So so it's critical in crime reduction. Mm. Um, But that's just computer technology. And some of the other things that are out there today are, are really mind-boggling. Um, we, you know, there's uh, today we, I was talking uh, with some folks who, who have drones that can do some pretty amazing things. Yeah. They claim to basically stop shootings. Um, they claim that they could also, like, 
you know, they have like infrared type stuff that goes through walls and you could see where people are in critical situations like building collapses, bombs yeah. or fires. Um, you know, stuff like that is the future. Do you think social media has taken away the emphasis on local government and, and made people shift it into more international, you know, issues? Uh, social media uh, has really, in my opinion, uh, made the truth more difficult to discover mm. because mm. there's there's no checks and balances. Right, right. And uh, in, in this world right right now today, you know, the media and social media, it's really difficult to get your message out through it because uh, people are just, you know, there will be aliens landing okay. uh, yeah. next Friday. So, so lastly, I know you got a you got a role, and uh, I, I got a you know thing thing that uh, I, I question with every great leader is you know, where you know where where do you get your leadership principles from? Where'd you get them? Who's who's a well, let's make it simple. Who's a leader or two in in, in your you have in your mind that <coughs> that uh, that that inspires you to be a leader, and that that you that that you look up to. Um, so it it would go back to a guy that my father worked for. Uh, a guy in the Marine Corps named Chesty Puller. Hmm. Uh, he won five Navy crosses over his career. Grand old man. <clears throat> went from went from Buck Private to Lieutenant General, which is a three-star general. Uh, and my dad was in his battalion. He was my dad's battalion commander. This guy used to wow. he used to light his pipe at night to draw sniper fire so that they could figure out where the shots were oh, coming from. Man. Um, but. You know, he also uh, was in charge of the 1st Marine Division at the Chosen Reservoir in Korea when they got surrounded by hundreds of thousands of, Jap of uh, Chinese. And uh, he, had the he made the comment uh, that we've got the enemy right where we want them. We could shoot in any direction and hit them. Oh. <laughs> <coughs> so that's the type of guy this guy was. But it's, it's way better than that because my favorite story about leadership was during World War II, <coughs> Puller was walking across uh, Camp Pendleton in San Diego, California, and he saw this young lieutenant getting saluted over and over again by a private. And Puller walks up and says, Lieutenant, what's going on here? And he says, Colonel, sir, and he gives him a salute. He says, sir, this private didn't salute me, so I'm making him salute me a hundred times to learn his lesson. And Puller said, without hesitation, and of course, Lieutenant, you realize by the military code of conduct, every salute must be returned. <laughs> and he made the lieutenant salute the private a hundred times. Oh, wow. <laughs> In the Marine Corps, the enlisted people uh, eat before the officers. Mm -hmm. and, and there's nobody more important than the troops who are working for you, who are out there doing a the job. Yeah. And that's what I try and emulate, you know, and that's... Any, that, any historical leaders also that you, that you study, that you look well, up to? I, I mean, I, I've studied a ton of military leaders, uh, um, obviously Puller, um, MacArthur... Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, uh, Ulysses Grant. Um, yeah, our drill instructors would make us say goodnight to Chesty Puller every night before we went to bed. Yeah, of course they would. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Well, the other thing was my dad was also with the Congressional Medal of Honor winner named John Bassalone. Oh, wow. Who, who uh, got, the, got the Congressional Medal of Honor on the next gun yeah. over from my dad, um, and then he got killed on Iwo Jima hmm. later on. But, um, you know, uh, Colin Powell uh, was a... a great leader and great book to read but so i i've studied leadership at many different levels uh, even going back to people like julius caesar believe it or not oh, awesome and you can also learn from bad leadership and studying people like adolf hitler you right. can learn a lot or saddam hussein absolutely um so i i've looked at all of them uh i like to say that um 
some of my best leadership traits have been learned from some of my worst bosses because <laughs> I don't ever want to do what those sure, people did. Sure. And uh, I think you can take something positive well, away from everything. You're, if, when you're passionate about something, you you know you got to study it hard, and you're and you've done that. And I know you well enough to know that your 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 education never stops. And uh, <clears throat> we're we're going to be proud to have you as a mayor of Chicago. We need a great <laughs> mayor here in the city of Chicago to to, to really uh, turn this place around. And, and we're going to be proud to have you as mayor. Uh, we we need to get your story out there to the masses because people know you, your compassion, and everything else. Your experience, your, your experience, yeah. your leadership. You're you're the only guy for the job. So that's cool. We appreciate Thanks, you being here. I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Nick. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thank Nick, you, for helping out. And uh, God bless you. And and we're gonna get the votes out for you, brother. That's what I'm talking about. Everybody, get out there and vote. February 26th, early and often. All right, <laughs> Dish CEO, we're out. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, ditchdiggerceo.com, for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at ditchdiggerceo and at Gary Rabine. If you listen to our show and want to become more successful, you will become more successful. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans. Then I became the CEO man. We're blessed to build a business in America where soldiers fight for our freedom every day. Dad's work ethic was taught from the seat of a gravel truck rolling down highway. Entrepreneurship, scaling business plans, then I became the CEO.